is still a wonderful uh, time to be able to open up the word. And I'd like to thank Chris for a wonderful introduction uh, to my message uh, with your question, uh, because those are, those are some of the questions that we need to be asking. Um, and those are the questions that Christ anticipates us asking as we um, seek to live lives of obedience and humble submission to him. Um, and uh, that is where we will, we're going to be in uh, the Sermon on the Mount this morning in Matthew chapter 7. So I would invite you to, uh, to turn there and we're going to start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount just to give ourselves a little bit of a context. But um, before we do that, why don't we uh, open up in a word of prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for your graciousness and your kindness, God. Even this morning, we were recognizing and praising you for your sovereignty, uh, for moving through the lives of people and history uh, to bring about your perfect will, Lord. And um, tonight it finds uh, me behind the pulpit, and uh, we pray for Pastor that you would be strengthening him uh, this evening and giving him the rest that he needs and his body needs and uh, restore him to good health, Lord, and that he will be able to continue to to serve you as you have called him to, God. I pray now, Lord, that you will minister to our hearts and open our hearts and minds to uh, consider the things of your word and to, uh, to understand what it is that uh, your son tells us here in the Sermon on the Mount and I uh, pray that we would leave uh, with a better understanding, God, of what you have uh, called for us to do and what you have done on our behalf. Praise your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, something that we hold in very high regard here at Fellowship Bible Church is the subject of expository preaching. Uh, now, that should be a, a something that we're all familiar with, a uh, uh, a concept that we could all agree to and say that's important, but maybe something that we should still seek to define so that we all understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about expository preaching. Uh, expository preaching is the practice of going verse by verse through the Bible, through a book of the Bible, through a passage of the Bible, to give the meaning to of the author to the original audience that we want to explain these things and flush them out and be able to, to communicate authoritatively what is it that God was saying through a servant to these people at this time when the, when the book, when the piece was written. And expository preaching comes with many benefits. First of all, it eliminates our own thoughts and opinions. We're not talking about what we are personally convicted by or what we may uh, feel passionate about in that moment. Uh, you see a lot of churches who uh, will run to topical uh, points, uh, whatever may be popular or moving that day, and there are times for that. And you can even address uh, topical things uh, exegetically exposi- in the, through expository preaching. Uh, but when you sit down through a passage or through a book and you work your way from verse 1, 1, all the way to the end, you begin to notice and understand that there's a flow, that there's a context in which the author, the speaker is speaking. There are many benefits to hearing this kind of preaching. And more than that, there is a benefit to studying this way as well. One of the benefits to being able to preach and teach the word of God on a regular basis is being able to study the word of God on a regular basis and starting at the beginning and working your way through. So that when you find yourselves in a present context, when you find yourself studying the passage that you're in, you understand 
its, its context as a part of the whole. You understand what has been communicated before that has gotten you to this point. You understand where the, the author, the speaker is going, where his priorities lie. You understand how it serves the greater purpose of the message. And all those things are, are benefits of expository preaching and, and, and things that you, you, you miss out on and you lose out on uh, when, when you just maybe hop down in a verse. And you may have heard the phrase, never read a verse. Uh, the idea is that you don't read a verse, you read a passage. You read the context, you read the book. You understand where it is as a whole. Now, what happens is you start to see how truths of the passage are laid out in the context, and it gives it a richer uh, textual meaning for you when it guards you from a wrong interpretation of the text. And that gets me to the, the, the passage that I'd like to focus on this evening in chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 11. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to... we're first going to read the passage and then we're going to set it in its context to give us understanding as to what it is that Christ is trying to uh, communicate to us. So let us, uh, let's read uh, through the verses and then we'll, we'll set the context. Starts out in verse seven of chapter seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, this is no, no doubt uh, a passage that is familiar to many of us. I'm sure you have heard this taught and preached. I remember uh, hearing this preached and when I was in college, we had prayer weeks where they would uh, cancel classes for part of the week and it would be focused on prayer and cultivating the prayer life. And I remember uh, one morning at an outdoor amphitheater um, at Grace Baptist in, in, uh, uh, in Santa Clarita. And I remember someone preaching from this is one of those things that just stuck out in my mind. I remember the exact context of hearing it. And it wasn't until I, I read this <clears throat> that I understood I think what it is that Jesus is actually saying, and I think I understood that it's not what I thought it was. Now, to put ourselves in the context of the passage, we have to understand that at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is starting to land the plane. When I was going through preaching labs and uh, in seminary, they would talk about how sometimes in a preaching lab, the person is circling the airfield and circling, and circling, and circling, and they're never landing the plane. In the message, you want to land the plane. You want to wrap it up. You want to guide down, and you want it to touch down, and you want to be able to have people leave with the truth to wrap it up, that you've gotten past the, the, the main chunk of your, of your message, and you're bringing it to a conclusion. You're starting to land the plane. And if someone had difficulty with their conclusion, they'd say, you need to work on your landing. What Christ is doing here is he's starting to land the plane of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount appears here in, in the book of Matthew, and uh, a few verses in the book of Luke uh, refer and, and con uh, concisely uh, summarize some of the, the, the teachings here on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke as well. But by far, the, the greatest chunk we have here is in the book of Matthew, and it's at the beginning of his ministry. 
He is just beginning, beginning his ministry. People are coming out. If you see in chapter 5, we always want to understand who is the general audience here. And we see in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we see here at the very beginning that Christ is surrounded by disciples. Now, at this point in Christ's ministry, when we read disciples, we're not talking about the 12. We're talking about a larger group of people. We're talking about a larger group of followers who are drawn out to hear Christ, to hear him speak about this kingdom that John the Baptist had talked about and had proclaimed, saying that I'm preparing the way for one greater than me, and that is Christ. And Christ here is explaining within the Sermon on the Mount what the kingdom of God truly looks like and what a kingdom believer looks like and thinks like and acts like. That he says, if you want to know, are you a kingdom believer? Do you belong to the kingdom of God? What Christ says is, take to heart the words of this sermon. May they evaluate your heart. May you make you think deeply about where you actually are. Do you believe what you say you believe? Does your life match your convictions? He begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. These are basic characteristics of kingdom believers. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart and the peacemakers. These are all characteristics of people who are walking in obedience before God. Those who God has changed their lives and given them a new heart. These are the, the, the blunt characteristics of the kingdom believer. Right off the get-go, what Christ is communicating here is true kingdom righteousness doesn't necessarily look what you think it looks like. And for much of the way, you can tell that he is contrasting it with the pharisaical righteousness of the day. People that would be held up as examples, the highest examples of people who communicated what the righteousness of God looked like. If people wanted to know what does holiness look like, what does a righteous person look like, if you took a survey, you would no doubt come up with a general sketch of a Pharisee. That was their idea of what righteousness looked like. So Jesus introduces this, and from the very beginning, he he brings them to an understanding of righteousness doesn't necessarily look like what you think it looks like. This is what the characteristics of a kingdom believer are. He moves on from the Beatitudes, and then he goes into a section where he's correcting some teaching on anger, lust, divorce, promises, retaliation. He has a a refrain where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Again and again and again, he says, it has been taught to you, you've heard it this way, but that is not true biblical understanding. Sometimes it was a teaching that was taken completely out of the context of Scripture itself. Sometimes it was just a verse taken out of context. Sometimes it was pharisaical tradition that they were teaching as if it was authoritative. He says, this is not biblical teaching. So Jesus is correcting their doctrine in the rest of chapter five. When we get to chapter six, we see that Christ is now addressing their, their spiritual worship. How do they worship the Lord? Now we see at the time 
uh, in in a uh, an, uh, a non biblical uh, writing that we have from that time, uh, the the spiritual uh, service, the spiritual worship of a believer, was boiled down to three things. They said, and it was giving, praying, and fasting. That was how they summarized and characterized their religious worship by those three activities. We have that in writing at the time before Christ. And what Christ does is he addresses each one of those things. First of all, he addresses the idea of giving. Saying, don't give in order to be seen. Don't give so that everyone is going to be aware that you're such a great giver. When I was in Uganda, uh, I was preaching in a church in the district of Luero. And I was at the bishop's church. And in the back of the church... On the back wall, they had every single person's name on the back wall who was a member of the church, and then next to it was what they gave. Out for everyone to see. That is certainly against the spirit of what Christ is talking about here. Saying, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Just give according to your conviction. Give as an attitude of worship. He talks then about prayer. They would pray multiple times a day and a Pharisee would accidentally find himself on the busiest sidewalk, the biggest interchange in Jerusalem during the busiest part of the day when he had to pray. And he's like, oh, well, I'm here in front of everyone, so I guess I have to pray here. And they would pray and they would pray loudly. They would use really long words. They, they, they would use the, the, the $10 theological terms. When I was in college, we would pray and we would joke about... The person would have to apply what they had learned in chapel or Bible uh, class that morning and, and, at the cafeteria when they pray and said that we would pray for whoever was at the table before we ate. And there was always the temptation where you, would, you felt like you had to communicate your theological training in your prayer. And there was one time I was praying and we had just gotten out of chapel talking about how we ought to pray before the Lord and not just fall into patterns where you say, hey, dear Heavenly Father, dear Lord, right? And you run into the same pattern of things and you address God the same way. And it's just rote mechanics. It's not actually coming from a heart of prayer. You're just repeating the same words that you normally use. And so being a good Bible student, I said, well, I have to exercise this. And I would normally say, dear Heavenly Lord, and I thought, I'm going to switch it up and call him Father. So I was praying, and it came out, Dear Heavenly Ford. <laughs> My father would have been happy, but it was embarrassing at the moment. And everyone started laughing, and we said, I think God knows our hearts. <laughs> and we started eating. But we, we seek, God knows the temptation of our heart that we seek to impress people with our prayer lives. And we want to be able to to communicate the five points of Calvinism in every prayer. We want to, to communicate the pillars and the, uh, of truth that we, we learn. And Jesus is saying, it's not about that. When you pray, pray like this. And he gives an example of prayer in the, in the Lord's prayer. He's saying, do it unto the Lord who sees in private, not unto men. If you do it unto men, you get your reward from men. He then goes on and talks about fasting. Now the Pharisees would fast and they would make sure if they were fasting that you would know they were fasting. They would try to look gaunt. They would 
they would take ashes and rub it on themselves to make themselves look worse because they wanted everyone to know how hungry they were, how famished they were. Jesus says, no, it's not about that. You're doing it for the reward of the people around you and their attention. That's all you're going to get. So Jesus in these three things is communicating to to the disciples around him that true worship is done unto the Lord and not unto men. That God looks at the heart. And speaking of the heart, he transitions into addressing our heart's temptations. The last time I I preached in in the evening service, we talked about this section in chapter 6, 19 to 24, about laying up our treasures in heaven. Knowing, living out our citizenship. And he talks about not being anxious in the following passage. Understanding and yielding things up to the Lord. That God is the one who is in control and providing for us. And not being driven by fear and anxiety and worry. Then he talks in the beginning of chapter 7 about not judging others. He's saying deal with sin in your own life. What he's not saying is don't help other people with their sin. You can help other people with their sin, but don't be a hypocrite about it. If you're struggling as much or even more, he's saying, you, you see the speck in the other person's eye. Meanwhile, he says, you have a log. It was a beam. It, the, the, the word that he uses there is the main structural beam that would hold up a house. He's saying, you have a beam sticking out of your eye. And meanwhile, you're recognizing the splinter in someone else's eye. The reality is, is your brother or sister have a splinter in their eye that needs help, but because of your own hypocrisy, you're not qualified to help them with it. Saying, put yourself in a situation where you can minister to others and help them. Don't be a hypocrite. By the time that the disciples who are hearing Christ are are sitting there at this time. They they feel like they're listening to this list of imperatives and they're being beaten down. And they're thinking, how do I possibly live this? Like this is, this is the opposite of everything that I've been told. This, this goes against the examples that have been raised up for me to follow in the Pharisees. How do I live this life that Christ is calling me to live? They're thinking about the imperatives of Scripture and the difficulty of having to love our neighbor, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean on our own understandings, not to conform yourself to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All All of these commands that we have in Scripture. So we get to... Chapter 7 in the passage that lays before us this evening. And as we read through this, we see very clearly that Christ is instructing us with prayer, right? And as, as I began studying this out, and I was studying this in order to be able to communicate this a Foundations Bible study, and I started asking myself some questions. I see this is about prayer. Now, as, as if you're a member of Foundations Bible Study, give other people a chance to answer this question. Not everyone raise your hand at once. What would be odd about an instruction about prayer at this point of the sermon? Knowing the context, knowing what we have just gone through, 
knowing where this stands, what would be odd about Christ taking the time now to discuss and instruct about their prayer life? No one wants to give the wrong answer, so I'll supply it. The answer is he's already talked about it. He already talked about prayer in chapter 6. He already gave them instruction about how to pray. And so this stands, as, as you're reading and studying through this, you're asking questions. You want to you know, where does this fit? How does this fit right here? How is this transitioning from the passage right before to what he's talking about now to what he's going to be talking about after? And you see an instruction about prayer. And if, you're, if you are teaching about prayer and you're teaching not in the context, you're not working your way through the Sermon on the Mount, you can sit here and you can say, these are good principles for prayer, right? But then you read through the passage and something about it doesn't sit right when you're talking about prayer in general. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you approach this passage as if this is just about prayer in general, you may walk away from this passage thinking that you have the cheat code. You have the genie in the bottle. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is seek. All you have to do is knock. And it will be open. This is a perfectly wrapped presentation for the prosperity gospel. If you lack something, it's because you lack the faith to ask for it. Now we know with a biblical theology that that isn't true. That what Christ desires for us is not to say, I really want a raise. So I'm going to ask for it. And if I ask in faith, God will give it to me. Or what I really want is a new car. Or I want this disease to be healed. I want this affliction to be lifted. So if I pray about it and I'm determined about it, God will answer because he says, if I, if I ask, if I seek, if I knock, that it will be given to me. Obviously, that does not fit within a biblical understanding of who God is what he desires for us, and what prayer is. So we have to ask ourselves, what is he talking about then? This isn't a blank check for people to fill out and use on whatever it is that they desire. What this is, is Christ's understanding that if we have truly understood the words that he has communicated to us, that we may feel beat down and we may feel a sense of inadequacy, defeated, hopelessness, asking how in the world am I supposed to live up to the standards that Christ has called me to? How in the world am I supposed to live without hypocrisy? How in the world am I supposed to just forget worry and anxiety how am I supposed to set my, make my, put my treasure in heaven and not on earth? That my heart is tempted against these things every single day. How am I supposed to, 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 to worship the Lord as, as Christ is calling me to here in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Remember, Christ is landing the plane. He's wrapping up the message here. And he's getting to the end. And he understands in compassion where his hearers are at. And he says, I understand you lack the ability to live these words. I understand that the standard is high, that the demand is real. So how can you live these things? How can you live a life of obedience? Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I believe what Christ is speaking about here is the direct context of what he's been talking about and telling them, how do you live a life of obedience? You go to the Lord. You ask him. You want to know what the Lord's will is for your life? Obedience. Righteousness. That's God's will. That is God's overarching will for each one of your lives. Living a life of obedience. And he says, I am going to help you do that. So let's work our way through this passage, understanding the context here. Each one of these are an imperative. It's a command saying that you ought to be doing this actively, presently. So the first thing is you are to ask. When we ask, it implies that one we expect an answer, right? If you were constantly ignored and you never thought that anyone would ever hear, you would never ask for anything. The call to ask the Lord for anything implies the fact that you have faith that believes that he is listening and he is eager to help. Asking also implies that the answer lies outside of you. I am notorious for not asking for directions. I am notorious for not asking where something is in a store because I'm going to find it upon my own determination. They have hung signs around. They want me to find the product, so I buy it. Asking implies a humility that you aren't the source of the information that you need. You aren't the, the source, the fountainhead of the help that you need. James chapter 1 verse 5, James is basically a redux of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Sound familiar? The book of James, written very much succinctly like the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same idea there. He's saying, seek the Lord. Ask. Ask for wisdom. When you understand that you lack it, and you understand that you need it. One of the greatest examples that we have, you don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll turn there. In Luke chapter 18, I find myself going to Luke 18 so much as I work my way through 
the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 10 to 13, you have the Pharisee, you have the publican, the tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself and he prayed to God, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Pretty self-centered prayer, right? Notice he talks about the three things that Christ speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount, giving, praying, and fasting saying, I do all three and I do them well. And I do them so people see. But, verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one humbles himself will be exalted. You will not go to the Lord unless you are humbled. And maybe we can reverse engineer that and say, if you do not go to the Lord, if you find yourself as a pattern of not turning to the Lord as as a primary uh, course of action, when difficulty arises, that communicates that you don't have a humble heart. That you're not seeking the Lord. Now, as we see, as we work our way through this, it's ask, then seek, and then knock. And you notice there's there's an increased aggression here. An an increase of activity. First, you're asking. Then you're going out and you're seeking it. Then you're just banging down a door, hoping to get it. He's saying the same thing three times, but each time he's stepping it up, stepping it up, stepping it up, saying this must be the course of action for your life. And you must be aggressive about it. Righteousness is not accomplished by osmosis. It doesn't happen naturally. You don't put a Bible underneath your pillow at night and become more Christ-like. You don't show up at church once a week or twice a week or three times a week. You don't show up to church and become more like Christ naturally. Certainly helps point us in that direction. But what he's saying here is if you recognize that you need something, you pursue it. If we were to take the same thing and uh, the, the, the principle here and apply it to hunger, food. I have two kids who are growing an insane amount and they're always hungry. Always. And it begins so early in the day asking for food and asking and asking. And then pretty soon it begins seeking food and going and looking to see what we have, what can they eat? And then it comes to the demand and the knock of get me something to eat. I am hungry. We have passed the point of no return. I must eat now. This is what Christ is speaking of with our righteousness. 
that we ask, we seek, we knock. We go and we purposely pursue what it is that God wants us to do, how God wants us to live, how God wants us to change the way that we think, how we worship him. Martin Luther said, God knows we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we need not dare pray. And that is Christ, why Christ wants us to remove all our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly before the Lord. Because he wants to hear our prayers and our concerns. If you pray for wisdom, if you pray for righteousness, that is a prayer that God will answer, but not by osmosis. This doesn't make you suddenly wise overnight. It happens through the word. It happens through fellowship. It happens through obedience, but it comes from the Lord. We see in verse eight, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds the one who knocks, it will be open. We have to ask ourselves, everyone, everyone. There's another reason why we know that he's not talking about prayer in general terms. When the Bible talks about everyone, he doesn't mean necessarily everyone. If I could illustrate that by saying last night, I was watching the Celtics game, unfortunately. And when they were making a gallant comeback and three points were dropping, I could say everyone in the garden was cheering. Now, if I were, that is a true statement. No one would doubt that. Everyone in the stadium was cheering. But if I said, well, does that mean that the Miami Heat bench was cheering? That was the, that was the opponent in this basketball match for those that don't speak sports. Does that mean that the Miami Heat were cheering? No, they weren't cheering. Does that mean I lied when I said everyone? I know Pastor Rag just talked about this a bit ago, but when he says, everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. What he's talking about here is the kingdom believer. He's talking about the audience, the person he's speaking of the people he's speaking to. He's saying, if you are to pursue the Lord, if God has called you and you are a kingdom believer, you are a kingdom saint, then God will answer this prayer. He will be faithful to do that. But if you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord, we know that God will not answer. James 4.3, you ask again, James You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is not the prayer of a believer. But we know, 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That is the attitude that we go to the Lord in, in prayer. Now he he goes on to illustrate this in verse 9 and, and 10 with talking about a a father on earth being approached by his child. And he's making an argument from the, the, the lesser to the greater, saying if this is true of the lesser, then it must be that much more true of the greater. And he says in verse 
9, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? The obvious answer is no one, no one would. Now, the, the, the Greek word, this is for the Greek students out there. The Greek word for this is artos, for, for bread here. Now, if you've taken it, artos, what does artos mean? Two main meanings. You remember? Bread or loaf. Yes, bread or loaf. You can speak of bread in terms of, of just the, the nature of bread or mean a loaf itself. If you translate it, I think it would be better off translated, ask for a loaf, would give a stone, because then that gives a better understanding of what Christ is trying to communicate here. Because a loaf of bread and a stone could look similar, right? It, you're not, this is before sliced bread, so nothing was great yet. So a loaf, a loaf, he's talking about. You wouldn't give your kid a loaf a stone instead of a loaf and then have them chomp down on him, you know, break their teeth. And they're like, what was that? Why did you do that? Jesus is saying there, no earthly father thinks like that. And he says, beyond that, what if, what if your child was hungry and asks for a fish, which one will give him a serpent? Now both scaly, potentially slimy creatures, but one was clean and one was unclean. The serpent would have been unclean for a Jew to eat. They couldn't eat those. They could eat the fish, but they couldn't eat the serpent. Jesus is saying again, not even a bad father is going to say, here's a snake, eat that. Now in Luke, he goes one more step here. Luke, in this same partner passage in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, if you ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. A scorpion rolled up would look like an egg. Again, no earthly father is going to be like, watch this. This will be hilarious. And then give his kid a scorpion to eat. No earthly father would do that. And that is Christ's point. In making the argument from the lesser to the greater. And he says in verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We're so saturated and affected by our sin, yet even through God's common grace, we as, as people know how to help meet our children's needs. Even though I am a sinner, I still know how to functionally take care of a child. Mostly. With the help of my wife. I just do whatever she tells me. But even we know how to do that. And what Christ here is saying, God has the perfect knowledge. And God's motivations are never wrong. They're never suspect. You never have to ask yourself, does God really want the best for me? Does he really intend to give me what is good? He knows what our true needs are more than we do. He knows how to perfectly help us in whatever situation we're in. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly omniscient. And he's perfectly powerful. Therefore, he is trustworthy for our prayers. 
And he is the trustworthy source to give us the means to live the life of obedience that Christ is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator said that this same Jesus who delivered these laws also came to deliver those who do not and cannot keep his law. He came to give commands to redeem those who violate them. He came to save sinners like you and I, and he calls us unto righteousness. He saves us out of sin, transfers Christ's righteousness into our account and then calls us to live up to that standard. And he equips us every step of the way. This is one of the greatest themes that I love in scripture. When God calls us and commands us to do something, and then in the next breath tells us, I'm going to do it for you. We're very familiar with Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who is at work within you. Ephesians 2.10, we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created beforehand that we may walk in them. He has created you for obedience and for righteousness, and he's accomplished it on your behalf. God calls us to live lives of holiness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's a declaration, folks. You are holy because you bear Christ's holiness in you. In your account, it has been imputed and reckoned to your account before God. But he never calls us to do something that he hasn't already equipped us for and isn't going to bring us through. He calls us to righteousness. He calls us to holiness. And by this time, the people have understood that the righteousness that God requires looks drastically different than the world around them. It looks drastically different than what they have been made aware of, how they have been raised, the role models that have been put before them. And Christ says, I understand you're probably overwhelmed right now. You're probably overwhelmed thinking about all those imperatives. How am I going to do this? How am I going to live this life? How am I going to live up to these impossible standards? How am I going to live victory over sin day in and day out? And Christ's answer is, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Christ provides the righteousness that we need to live lives of obedience before him. He is our source of salvation. He is our source of righteousness. And he is the source of our glorification. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Let us go to Christ to live the life that he calls us to. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you, God, for your your grace and your understanding. Lord, it can be so easy to, to bear down on the heart of a believer to make us feel guilty about not living up to a certain standard, to produce a guilt within us, a, a fear 
that we cannot live the life that you have called us to live. But God, you desire us to be in a situation where we rely upon you to work that out in our hearts. You have promised that it will be given, that we will find it, and it will be opened to us. God, help us to pursue righteousness in Christ and live the life of a kingdom believer, as you have called us to do, to be a light into this world and a salt to the earth. It's your name. Amen.